a podcast about the media, politics, and the politics of the media. My name is Dan Hind, and I'm joined as ever by my colleague Tom Mills. Hello. Tom, normally we talk a bit about what's been going on in the media in any given week, um, uh-huh. and a great deal has been going on with uh, Russia Today and with YouTube and all sorts of other things. But let's, let's look ahead slightly to the weekend and yeah. talk a bit about the Media Democracy Festival which is happening, I think, on Saturday. Tell our listeners a bit about that. Yeah, so this is a festival a conference, if you like, being held this coming Saturday, which is Saturday the 17th of March. So it's an all-day event, which is going to be at Birkbeck in central London, examining questions of media reform, media polarity, problems with the media, and it's a free event. So I'll be there speaking. I think you're attending as well, aren't you? I'm going to be there. Hopefully I'm going to have a handheld microphone. Trying to snaffle some free content. Um, so we'll be both there. And what time does it start on, on Saturday, Tom? I think um, registration is from 10 o'clock. And the programme lasts until 5. So the first panel, which is going to be with Dawn Foster, starts at 10.30. Mm-hmm. And then it's going to be closing with Owen Jones, amongst other people, from 4.30 till 5. And one... Thing which may be of interest to uh, listeners is that there's a panel there on democratising the broadcast media. So I'm going to be presenting a set of draft proposals for reforming the BBC, which we've been developing with the Media Reform Coalition and the panel of people there. And I'm going to be speaking alongside Ria Zmir from Bektu, Gary Merrill from Roehampton, Cam Sandu, who has been on the show, and Joanna Romero. So... Uh, that's going to be in the afternoon. So do come along to that. But there's lots of interesting people involved. You know, if this is any incentive, you can see the legendary Matt Zarb-Cousin, Dr. Bastano, Kerry M. Mendoza, and a bunch of other people. Tom Barlow from the Media Fund uh, is going to be there as well. So, yeah, do come along if you're in London. Or if you're not, then, um, well, just to make sure you are in London. Well, hopefully there'll be some, some like, audio and video will come out of it, hopefully. Um, but people yeah. will be able to see. I hope so. I don't know. Um, yeah. Dan and I aren't involved in organising, but I hope that if you aren't able to make it, then it might be available online at some stage. And Dan has already volunteered himself to do some short interviews, which we're, which we'll post as and a I, short podcast, won't we? I am, if nothing else, a man of my word. Right, um, we have got an amazing interview uh, this week, and we're going to go into that after the break. So, yeah, hope we hope we see some of you guys at the Media Democracy Festival on Saturday. We're joined now by Professor Christopher Simpson. Christopher Simpson is is a professor of journalism and communication at American University in Washington D.C. And he's the author of Science of Coercion, Blowback, Universities and Empire, The Splendid Blonde Beast, and a number of other titles. His work has been translated in a dozen languages around the world. Today we're going to be talking with Professor Simpson about his 1994 book, Science of Coercion. And from there we'll broaden out the conversation to talk a bit about the current state of the art in propaganda, both in theory and in practice. Um, Professor Simpson, Chris, thank you so much for joining us on the show, um, and welcome to Media Democracy. Um, thank you. Uh, what um, what I'd like to do, Chris, is start with a um, a, a sort of a, a very general question for our, for our listeners about the thesis of science of coercion. So, could you just talk through people who aren't familiar with the book, um, the, it, its sort of main main sure. argument. Well, what it is is a history of how both uh, propaganda and uh, communication research, communication studies, grew up together after World War II and how they influenced each other. 
and how they really come from a single root. Uh, so I, I was able to track that down both by contemporary records and also by Freedom of Information Act requests. So you say that they come from a, um, a common root. I mean, you know, naively, I think we tend to think of, um, of, as it were, modern propaganda and the study of communications as having a very, very di different sort of genealogies. Where, where do you trace that common root back to? Well, you can trace it back to World War One, and and I do at least discuss the World War One stuff uh, in the book. Mm -hmm. But the main documentation is uh, post World War Two. Uh, uh, propaganda, in its modern sense, arose with radio mm -hmm. and with World War, uh, so that that uh, the opinion of the home front or the opinion of your allies, the opinion of your enemies. All those things became what we would call today force multipliers. In other words, they had military advantages or disadvantages. So military and intelligence organizations set out to find what they called at the time magic keys to how communication worked. And the idea was is if you can find the right mix of fear and hope and uh, carrots and sticks that you can get people to behave the way that you want them to, especially in wartime, or applying the same techniques to marketing and political propaganda and corporate propaganda, you would get the same results or at least similar results. That's... This was viewed as, as a, a form of social control. And that, that's their term in the, of the 1950s, not my term, social control. So in a sense, you would see much as uh, wartime, uh, wartime competition is, acts as an accelerator for things like the development of um, a, um, aviation, for example, which then bleeds into the civilian sure. sector. You'd argue that something analogous is going on in communications, that the, the great pressure of war creates a, a set of communication technologies and, and ways of using communication technologies, which then um, can be applied in, uh, in the context of a, a peacetime economy. Yes, that's right. Absolutely right. And uh, that, uh, at least in the case of, say, aviation, the base, some of the basic technologies of aviation, or at least of, of uh, lift, uh, were, were already known. Yeah. In the communication field, it was much less professionalized or scienceized, so to speak. Uh, so uh, there, were, there were ambitious academics, ambitious uh, professors, ambitious uh, magazine executives, and so forth, mm -hmm. all of whom saw... Uh, communication as a tool for social management, a tool that was profitable, uh, and uh, a tool that, that could be uh, developed in a systematic or scientific way. So they set about doing it. That's, again, that's super interesting, because, of course, when you think of some of the key figures uh, in the development of um, public relations, someone like Bernays obviously famously starts out in theatrical promotion. Um, so yes. some of the pioneers were very were coming from a very rackety background, um, but within a very short period of time, as you say, you have a, a huge amount of academic focus and interest um, on refining and, as it were, rationalizing these techniques. Um, sure, sure. Just to very... So Sorry, Tom. Do you want to come? Do you want to jump in now? Yeah, I just um, wanted to ask, like, how, uh, in, in terms of how you can see with this, is um, we're talking about the professionalization of a, a set of skills and um, processes that are always already underway. Is that right? I mean, because obviously we have yeah. um, a history of persuasive communication that goes back much further. So I was just wondering how you sort of. I, I mean, I guess we can get a bit more into how you define um, propaganda later in the discussion, but. Um, it, what sure, you're talking sure. about is really a sort of formalized scientific version of something that was already going on, right? Well, that, that's right. But also there's a technological revolution going on at the same time. So 
So, for example, commercial radio, at least in the United States, emerged in 19, the very earliest, go back to the early 20s, but as a commercial enterprise. It began 1928, 1929. Uh, there was a series of uh, laws passed concerning, you know, frequency use and that type of thing. Uh, so there was a, 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 a radio-driven shift in people's habits and in culture. And, of course, it wasn't exactly the same as we're seeing today, but there is a similarity to the extent that uh, communication tools can change uh, culture, or at least have the potential to change culture and um, society uh, remarkably quickly. Right. So it's the... So as you say, there's this, there's this kind of coincidence, isn't there, of... Um a wartime focus on well, uh, curing consent. Yeah, not to go too far off the point, but like, yeah. say, for example, um, I'm, you know, I teach in a, a university, and so I was very interested in other people who teach, quote unquote, communication in universities. What exactly are they teaching? Mm -hmm. uh, I was interested in how public relations. Uh, students are are uh, trained up and uh, marketing and so on, uh, both in terms of the specific techniques that students in these fields are are taught and in the uh, the ideology, for lack of a better word, uh, or the the worldview mm -hmm. of the students. And um, Chris, could could you talk about um, what what were the early um, skills and techniques which were which were being developed at that time at the, the time of the birth of radio and you know what gets called mass communications? Sure, sure. Well, uh, most of the development in the early thirties was a rise of consumerism, uh, both as a habit and as a goal. Uh, so, in the very early times, you you had. Uh, uh, magazines, for example, attempting to do surveys of their readers and to to better target advertising, which obviously is something uh, is much more sophisticated today. Uh, when we got it, when we get into the war period, what you have are uh, whole, literally thousands of uh, soldiers who can be uh, experimented on. Um, I'm not talking about medical experiments. I'm talking about communication effects ex experiments. Does fear work better than praise for mobilizing somebody? Does teaching one way rather than another way help soldiers learn more quickly? Um, what is the, how long does the impact of a, of a message last? How deep is it really? Uh, and we can talk about that in, in, in more uh, detail. But the point is, is that there were systematic studies of the effects of communication for the purpose of building the war effort and also moving into the Cold War now for the purpose of better conduct of, of the, well, not better, but uh, more effective conduct of the Cold War. Uh, so the lots of pressure coming from the government, coming from uh, the existing media in the United States at that time, particularly the Time Life Empire, uh, which was very powerful at that point, um, to pursue uh, the Cold War. Uh, you know, once once Truman was in office, the, he, he had a, uh, a difficult time making a big U-turn as to what uh, public opinion was towards Germany, for example, and what public opinion was towards the Soviet Union, for example. Um, so, you know, I can get into the history of that if you wish, but the point is, is, is that the government of the United States was making a, a major turn in how it, uh, in its international strategy, mm -hmm. and how it explained that strategy to people, how it convinced people, or attempted to convince people that the strategy makes sense. To, to use uh, Noam Chomsky and Ed Herman's term, to manufacture consent uh, for a policy that, in fact, had already been decided upon. Mm -hmm. So, in a, in a sense, there's a, obviously there's a sort of very there's a very lurid literature surrounding the idea of 
um, mind control. But in a fairly sort of prosaic sense, the, you can see the state, particularly, as you say, in the context of the Cold War, where naively perhaps Americans thought that they were going to enjoy peace and a return to relative isolation after the defeat of, of the Nazis. Um, there, there, there clearly is an, a need to regiment public opinion and impress on it the need for uh, a, a continued sort of militarization of society. Um, yeah, well, that's true. Yeah. That's true. I, I specifically, um, the, the concept of mind control, as some people uh, uh, explain it is, mm -hmm. or to attempt to articulate it, is uh, basically that uh, the signal goes out from some central uh, point and it somehow penetrates uh, a person's mind and then they do whatever the signal tells them to do. That is transparently false. It doesn't work that way. Right. So part of the research had to do with how do you find a way that to to uh, uh, exercise social control, to mold social control or mold uh, consent uh, in a nominally democratic society. Um, and it, in in that sense, the kind of the 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 sort of the cinematic representation of mind control becomes um, a, a a distraction from what's really going on, doesn't it? The idea of sort of almost that's like right. robotics. That's right. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, like Manchurian Candidate or something. You know, the the, the candidate was uh, practically fabricated from raw flesh, and then he comes to the United States and and he's a candidate for president, mm -hmm. right? So it's clearly there were medical experiments along exactly those lines, including drug experiments. The CIA was very much involved in drug experiments, LSD experiments, and so on. Mm -hmm. But there is also, there's also an effort that's on a, on a social level, a group level, a society-wide level. It's more akin to marketing soap than it is to manufacturing a Manchurian candidate. And the and the idea is there the 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 would be manipulator seeks to mobilize existing social dynamics in pursuit of a particular. Oh, absolutely. Agenda. Yeah, yeah. Which again, yeah, um, absolutely. Is um, it's very something that Bernays is very um, is very explicit about in some of some of his writings. Before we move on from um from the book, which I I couldn't recommend um. Highly enough, I think it's a, a, an extraordinary insight into um, in, into the ways in which communications is is converted or, or perverted into a science in the mid-century. But before we move on, can just very quickly, I mean, what what prompted you to to take a look at this as a as a subject of study? Well, I was studying communication myself, and I had previously done a fairly large amount of study of uh, both the Holocaust and uh, uh, American intelligence operations. Uh, and I began to recognize uh, either key players or key journals in which they were showing up in both categories. Uh, and so I, I looked into it in a more systematic way. I used the Freedom of Information Act and, and other tools. And uh, it gradually fell into place. Also, other other writers have have done histories of the field of communications before. Mm -hmm. They tend to be not all of them, but they tend to be anodyne, and they tend to only look at uh, marketing, marketing of soap, marketing of this, marketing of that. Um, but I was interested in the the politics of it in the sense of marketing political candidates, but in the marketing, the, the whole point of marketing is to induce people to act in some way that they would not otherwise have acted. Mm -hmm. uh, now, that doesn't mean that turning them into robots, but it does mean a multi-billion dollar industry. Uh, public relations in the world today by their own figures, pulls down about $45 billion uh, globally per year. 
And and that's act, that's just public relations. That doesn't include marketing, advertising, and all the rest. I wanted to ask you about the um, the role of the academy and all of this because you you mentioned how it was driven by the state, and obviously in the process of the Second World War, there's a huge expansion of the American state, and you know what gets referred to as the military industrial complex. I think that's later called the military industrial academic complex. Uh, what what could you talk a bit about the, the politics of the academy, the ways in which um, academics responded to from what sounds like was a, um, a push coming from the corporate sector and um, from the state? Um, what, were there, was there um, a politics of, uh, was there some resistance to this? Um, I wonder how it played out in the context of the Cold War and what the politics were of the main um, social scientists involved. Well, those are great questions. <laughs> Big questions as well. <laughs> so, I'm not I'm not sure that I can do all of them in 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 one shot. But the gist of it is is at least I believe the gist of it is is that this was um, an emerging field, both on the uh, civilian side, the economic side, the commercial side, and on the military and intelligence side, and that uh, the um, that the people who came to be known as the fathers of communication research were people who worked on both sides of that fence, in fact, very deeply. Um, so communication research, uh, there was a, a phase after the war that was very much propaganda, right? And you can tell what they thought of propaganda. It's because they published, among other things, bibliographies of every article that they could identify as to what was propaganda. Okay. And so that was issued in that particular one I'm referring to was issued, I believe, in 1951. In the mid-50s, there was a shift in the jargon, a shift in the words, and a shift in, uh, again, ideology, for lack of a better word, in which what had been explicitly propaganda during wartime and during the first um, decade of the Cold War, became uh, instead international communication. It had a new name. It had a new glossier, or at least the, the effort was a new glossier reputation. Um, and, uh, uh, and the way that you know that is, is that they published the same group, uh, that same uh, annotated bibliography about what is propaganda. They published the same bib big bibliography, excuse me, about international communication with the same content. Uh, so <laughs> That's fantastic. <you> can, <laughs> it's true. Uh, and uh, so you, you can trace uh, how ideas that came quite directly out of wartime in the yeah. early Cold War migrated into the academy and and who was the who were the main advocates of those ideas uh, what those people were doing at, at in the 1950s who was paying their bills for example um, and uh, uh, and their their point of view their worldview how they saw the world when you when you say the sort of fathers of communication research is, is it people like Harold Laswell that you're you're thinking of yeah, Laswell was was a very much of a, a, a important figure in this because his goal was to uh, bring together uh, public communication on the one hand with individual psychology on the other hand. This uh, this is much the same as what uh, Bernays did. Laswell was much more was much more brutal. Uh, he say, for example, he spoke of assassinations as a form of communication, uh, labor violence or violence against labor as a form of communication, uh, and and so on. So Laswell was a key player in this. And, and um, Clyde Cluckholm is he someone who struggles? Sorry, can I quick? Does he straddle that divide between sure, the state sure. and and academia in the sense that? He's been commissioned to do research well, around the state, or, or how does his how does he relate to these two different um, sure. sort of areas of activity? Right. Well, Laswell is 
an example of, of what is for me an important idea, and that is um, academic entrepreneurs who are academics or scholars who have a entrepreneurial approach to presenting themselves as experts, as uh, uh, leaders of their field, uh, and as uh, people who, who the university should hire and tenure and uh, put to work. Um, now, Laswell as an individual, he remained uh, relatively... He got university roosts, so, you know, he, he was working in universities. But mm -hmm. he was not the leader of the sort of mainstream commercialization of consumerism mm -hmm. uh, that, uh, say, Clyde Cluckholm was. He was an anthropologist. Uh, uh, Eddie Bernays, uh, another early propaganda uh, specialist, and, and many others. Mm -hmm. uh, what there was, there was a very interesting experiment in the mid 1950s that had to do. What it consisted of is that uh, U.S. Air Force planes flew over a, um, a part of uh, Montana and then later a part of Mississippi and uh, dumped uh, leaflets uh, on those communities, and the leaflets said. This could have been a bomb. If you get this leaflet, please call such and such a number. And what they wanted to find out was how communication or, or the, the, the flow of communication um, operated. And the reason that they were using leaflets like this is because they, they were planning uh, or they wanted to have the capacity uh, to conduct nuclear war. Uh, the, the question, the scientific question was, okay, uh, say Russia's in devastation, it's because of the war, dump leaflets on it, obviously in Russian language, uh, and who, who actually sees them? Who picks them up? Um, and what is, what is the response um, uh, uh, to those leaflets? Um, so that, uh, that was... And that test was done by a, a particular communication scientist who's, who's very prominent at the time. And um, he, he, what he did was to go on... Um, what, he, what he did, first of all, was bring together a core of his graduate students and um, uh, created an idea that mm -hmm. has later become very popular, which is called diffusion of innovation. People in this field will, will know that uh, right. title because it's, it's pervasive. Um, and uh, so as part of this experiment for the Air Force, he made a list of all of the people who had contributed to that project. Uh, and their, their various publications and the, their dissertations and their theses and this thing and that thing. And so by looking at this, you can get a sense of how diffusion of innovation, specifically concerning the use of leaflets in wartime, mm -hmm. and more generally concerning how to move people in emergency situations, move them emotionally, move them uh, psychologically, in emergency situations, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and those ideas integrated themselves into the field that we call communication research or call international communication. And, and you know, I mean, look at look at the invasion of Iraq. Look at uh, the uh, situation in Vietnam. Look at many many other uh, uh, incursions. Um, and uh, uh, counterinsurgency efforts and so on. And you can see the fruits of this approach to communication. I think what's really interesting about what you're saying, this is going back slightly to, um, I think it was Laswell, that, that communication there is understood as part and parcel of a, of a, a set of military strategies that in, includes violence. And you were saying that he saw assassinations as, as part of a um, propaganda strategy. Is that right? 
or part yeah, of a communication strategy. And this is interesting because it, it, it's, it slightly runs against how some academics today think of military propaganda as being an alternative to uh, violent right. action. But what you're saying is, is that it's actually part of the same, it's on the continuum with the the whole um, a set of processes that includes, yeah, uh, violence and yeah, absolutely. It's a continuum is a good word. It's part of the spectrum. Now, the specific role of the military and intelligence agencies um, was to pay the bills, uh, to be able to convince the U.S. Congress to allocate money to the military, and which is not a hard thing to convince the Congress to do, and then in that way uh, hire uh, scholars and academic specialists to look at the questions of communication for the specific purpose of applying them to military tactics. Um, and so what, what that in turn meant was that you have a number of think tanks, you have a number of individual scholars and so forth who otherwise would not have been employed. Um, but who instead were able to use this funding and, and of course, the leverage that comes with funding in a, in a university um, to, to underwrite very uh, uh, prominent careers. Wilbur Schramm is another example of the same thing. Um, in, in science of coercion, it, it breaks it down. I mean, there's, there's literally dozens of examples of that particular pattern. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we, we often think of uh, the develop disciplinary developments as being driven by um, some autonomous process. But, but clearly here, you've described a sort of a, a mutually beneficial relationship between academic entrepreneurs and an expanding military and military establishment, which ends up creating um, very large and well-funded um, dis you know, disciplinary departments um, that are, as it were, naturalized. They're just seen as part of a university campus um, without, exactly. their, without, without their origins being interrogated. I suspect you can see an analogous process in the, in the vast expansion of economics in the 20th century. Um, so the brand was very absolutely. involved in um, rational development of rational choice, wasn't it? There's that um, book, sure. um, Rationalizing Capitalist Democracy. I don't know if either of you read that, but it's, it tells the story of how um, rational choice theory was developed by you know mathematicians at RAND, who were part of this, it's the same sort mm -hmm. of Cold War military networks, and um, then that, that finds its way into the academy. And... and um, I guess you could things like public choice as well come from the same, the same sort of um, roots, which then get funded by conservative foundations right. and all of that. I suspect we're drifting well, into. It, it's, yeah. it's a, you're, I think that you're exactly right, but I, I think that there's a, another layer to this particular onion, is mm -hmm. that there's a real tendency, especially uh, today, to approach that sort of development that you've just described as um, a, a, a directed conspiracy um, for and but that I think is a misunderstanding it's because what's happening is viewed as an organic process it's true in communication research it was true in the development of computers it is true in many other fields um, the it's true in the concept of diffusion of innovation. Uh, the, but, but that, but what happened, let me, let me say it a little bit differently. What happened was not the, these particular individuals who were engaged in this became successful, uh, particularly in, in the academy and in their careers. But what is more uh, important, I believe, is that what happens is, is that American institutions, and I think British ones, institutions as well, evolve in such a way that they generate a con an approach to communication that uh, is general, right? It, it, turn on your television set, load up your computer, uh, and that, uh, you know, we can 
we can say a couple of things about that approach to communication. First of all, it's it's a very old approach. I mean, it goes back well before uh, the the modern era. The famous Rosetta Stone, for example, was what many people, what archaeologists call a propaganda statement on stone. And why was it propaganda? Well, there had been an uprising in Egypt, and Egypt at that time was was run by uh, more uh, and heavily influenced by the uh, Greeks. Um, and so the, the what the Rosetta Stone says is, we suppress this uprising, and here are the terms of uh, the new state. Um, and they say it in both the uh, uh, hieroglyphic uh, language of educated Egyptians of the period and in Greek. And that's why it's the Rosetta Stone. Uh, cool. So for the first time, it. Go on. Sorry, I was just I was just saying, of course, yeah, I, I hadn't I hadn't been aware of, uh, of why it was bilingual in that way. No, I didn't know that either. Yes. Well, uh, it's uh, it, there's an interesting magazine. It's called Archaeology. Uh, it's a U.S. magazine. Uh, but there was a, there's a whole article about it, I don't know, two or three months ago, something like that. Right. Think about it again is in the context of the emergence of, of states and governments. If you move from being a basically village sort of society to having a more centralized government, with that comes certain types of communication needs, certain types of documentation needs. Uh, a very uh, interesting and insightful uh, communication uh, researcher, Harold Innes, looked at that and looked at the particular media that was used at that time. And what you can trace back is, is, uh, is what many people would call propaganda back to the very earliest emergence of states. So you'd so you'd see the the modern development of a as it were a science of communication as being an attempt to to codify a much older coercive model of of as it were language use by power power seeks right right seeks of society of society per se language use absolutely right society per se same thing it's it's not easy. Let's put it this way. It's not easy to get people to do what a central ruler wants them to do. And so it is a problem of state building as to how to bring that about. How do you bring about that sort of allegiance? How do you bring about that sort of cooperation and so on? Um, and uh, that, those are the real roots of propaganda. We could talk about um, science conversion all night, but it, this brings us very neatly to to looking at the the contemporary moment, where, um, as with the rise of radio in the in the twenties and the the, the emergence of mass TV in the fifties, I think it's fair to say that with the internet and the, the massification of the internet, as it were, we're going through another important in inflection point, an important moment of transformation in the way that um, the media is consumed, in the way that central authority relates to um, its population and so on. And I wanted to uh -huh. to start off really by asking, you know, were you to be writing a uh, uh, an equivalent book to science, to science of Coercion now and looking at um, this Shift this shift for, towards a digital uh, regime in communications. Do you think are there are there debates? Are there individuals? Are there institutions that you would want to focus in on and highlight as being particularly important for understanding our our contemporary moment? Uh, well, uh, yes, yes, of course. Uh, you know, think tanks are are very important in this process. Uh, I think one of the in, insights that, that Chomsky and Herman had is very important, and that is, is that in a heavily mediated society, uh, institutions draw 
together heavy mediation and engineer it. Uh, you don't have to send out a message from the central sensor. They do it organically. Um, so uh, in the present situation, I think really the first place to look is the wars that are going on right now, Afghanistan, Middle East, and so on, um, in, including the, uh, the, the Palestinian struggle. Um, where the various players have well thought out uh, uh, strategies for using uh, communication to uh, to shape the battlefield. Uh, so the at least the the, the battle for the mind. Um, another aspect of this is is that once you start looking at online persuasion or the, the relationship between propaganda and the state and, and power, not just the state, but power, um, it's, it's quite easy to see that, first of all, that propaganda is pervasive in society today. One can make an argument that it's the single largest form of uh, communication uh, other than face-to-face -face discussions. What do I mean by that? Well, for example, clothing. Clothing is a form of propaganda. It's a form of making a statement. It's a form of being included or excluded. So you have, to name only one example, and there's many others, you have military uniforms and so on. You have countries where you must, women must wear a headscarf, and you have countries where women must not wear a headscarf. Those are highly politicized personal statements that you see just walking down the street. Um, yeah, you so, rarely we rarely sort of think consciously about them, do, do we? But the um, even something as simple as blue jeans are a, a, an eloquent testimony to a certain sort of power projection by the United States. Um, absolutely, and, absolutely. And it, I think I think the EU are talking about slapping tariffs on denim goods from the United States, um, <laughs> uh, or certainly Harley Davidsons and and bourbon whiskey apparently are high on their list of. Um, things to tackle um and as you say like if you think about the consumer space more generally you know simple physical goods are in invested with almost magical properties through branding techniques so that yes. um a you know a fairly generic um spirit alcohol produced on an industrial estate somewhere becomes the embodiment of you know, the, the, the old South or of Russia or, you know, depending on which colorants you add to it um, and which label you put on it, it, it communicates supposedly something very different about the consumer. Um, and as you say, sure. we encouraged to sort of express ourselves uh, in a very complicated kind of um, almost a, an arms race of, of status um, display. Absolutely. So, Can I ask? Um, so one, it, what, one, one more thing on this before we leave you know, sure. that particular topic um, is that these types of states and this type of uh, coercive communication always carries with it surveillance, surveillance of the general population. Why? Well, in a purely commercial sense, you want to have the, the, the sponsor wants to have surveillance to know who's buying, who's not buying, what message works, what message doesn't work. How do you get more specific literally by the day using um, uh, data uh, collection techniques uh, on the Internet? So that, and these things become extremely intrusive. Uh, most people take them for granted, but on the same token, when just what you were saying about branding, the, there's a whole philosophy, there's a whole strategy of branding that, that is taught in universities, among other places. Uh, but the gist of it is, is that the brander seeks to convince the audience to identify themselves in terms of the brand. I'm a Harley Davidson kind of guy. I'm a, uh, I'm a bicycle kind of guy. 
and so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can you look at pick up a magazine, look at the cosmetics ads, uh, turn on the television set, uh, product placement. Uh, oh, I'm a Jerry Seinfeld kind of guy. That type of thing is giving people a form of self identification that uh, that many people desire. They, they they want it. They need it, and they're not getting it through more conventional or more old-fashioned, more traditional uh, sources, such as church, state, um, local community, those more traditional sources. I wanted to ask about your definition of propaganda, because it seems like the, the way you've described it is quite broad. It could encompass all kinds of features of complex society. So what, what, what do you consider to not be propaganda to, to contrast with the, with the kind of things? Because you, you've gone there from um, fashion statements to forms of, let's say, military propaganda in, in Israel, Palestine. Is what we're doing now, putting out um, information onto the internet, a form of propaganda? Well, I think the the internet is certainly used for propaganda. And, and uh, one of uh, Trump's uh, victory, so to speak, has been able to, he's been able to take the term propaganda, which is getting stale, uh, and turn it into fake news. So in that way, he can revive, or he does revive, um, old debates about propaganda and the role of coercive communication in society. Um, the as to what is not propaganda, uh, how can I say this? First of all. What is propaganda is uh, consumer uh, tr- consumer tracking and cons- and forms of coercion that are linked to consumer tracking. For example, the classic thing said about propaganda is um, that uh, why don't you just turn the page? You know, what, change the channel. You don't like what's on there? Change the channel uh, and. But in fact, today as it stands already in, in, in terms of the internet, is that you can't change the channel. You can't uh, really use the internet. Uh, you can't, it is, let me say it this way, it is very difficult to live a normal life without depending on the internet. And the internet in turn is a very powerful surveillance tool. That doesn't mean that the thing to do is to be paranoid exactly. It means the thing to do is to try to understand the relationship between um, how people uh, generate thoughts and ideas on the one hand and the institutional structures of a society on the other hand. This One, one way to think about this is, is that uh, we're looking at the the reconstruction of society or of a culture again and again and again over time. How does society reconstitute itself? Well, in a relatively democratic society, there's constant conversations, there's constant debates about this thing and that thing. What's happening on a macro level, and the Trump administration is a good example of this, is a, a effort to, of the society as a whole, to adapt to changing circumstances, including radically changing circumstances, while maintaining its coherence as a society. You follow me? Uh, you can see this in the evolution of the Catholic Church over time. This is, I'm not saying this is, a, this is not an anti-Catholic statement. I'm simply saying that major institutions adapt to changing times without, and they attempt to do it without losing their own history and what the leaders of that institution consider to be um, valuable. Mm-hmm. What propaganda does is that process. It, it is that conversation. Um, so... I don't know. Does that answer your question? I mean, the, yeah. I mean, uh, I suppose the question was how do we, how can we distinguish between forms of communication which we would regard to be propaganda and forms of communication that are non-coercive or presumably not related to the reproduction of powerful institutions? Is that is that broadly 
what what you're saying? Well, like because we're obviously communicating with each other now, and we're communicating with the, yeah. the listeners to the podcast. But I wouldn't see what we're doing necessarily as being propaganda. But maybe you would. I don't know. Okay. Uh, fair enough. What uh, the type of communication, the the most important type of communication in society is face to face communication, and typically. That is not propaganda. Um, Typically, propaganda, at least in the present generation, is mediated uh, communication. Now, we know that mediated communication bleeds through into face-to-face communication. Nevertheless, the whole area of family, um, of community, and so forth, Mm -hmm. is distinct from propaganda, at least in my view. Um, isn't, isn't there a useful... Which is... Sorry, Chris, to interrupt. Isn't, isn't there a useful distinction to be made between... Um, and I think this is something you talk about in, in Science of Coercion, between forms of communication which are essentially insincere in that they simply wish to secure compliance um, and maybe kind of dressed up as being... They may be dressed up as being sort of natural or conversational but which are essentially aimed at um, achieving a particular end on the listener and forms of communication yes. which are much more um, based on ideas of mutuality where the idea is that at the end of a conversation both parties may well have changed their positions not necessarily in a kind of mushy compromise but through the process of, of mm-hmm. discovery um, they, yes. they, could, they could emerge very happy to have a different point of view, whereas a, as it were, a, a proper propagandist is someone who leaves the conversation, as it were, completely untouched by anything that's been said to them. Right? They're supposed to just get yeah. their message across, and in a sense, whether they believe the message is is a se- se- separate question as well. In the same way, Dan. Yeah. I mean, well. Yeah. Sorry. Go well, on, Christopher. No. No. You go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say that we've also said that propagandists themselves are adapting to the environment in which they operate. So it doesn't seem right to say, okay, if a propagandist wouldn't take away anything from a conversation, because in the case of the social scientists, their efforts to persuade people, they do learn from their failures, don't they? And they, oh, sure. they're obviously no, no, trying to sure. interact with the subjects and sort of hone their 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 ability to persuade. No, so, right. no, right. No, you're absolutely right. The, the, they would they would need to be very well, aligned with what they're doing. I'll give you an example of a technique of how this works. It's very common public relations technique. It's called framing. And what that does is when there is a story to be told, particularly in an unpleasant or tense situation, you tell that story in such a way that it is maximum benefit to your sponsor. And the way that you do that is to put a frame around it that cuts out the context of all the other things happening in the world other than the message that you're trying to get across to your audience. Um, The problem with this is that obviously context is connected to, to take a classic case, the BP oil spill in in the Caribbean. The context is crucial to understanding who's responsible for this. What are we going to do about it? Is this a generic problem or is this a one-off kind of problem? That context is cut out of the conversation. And, and it's, it's not, and it's, it, it tends to be invisible to the listener unless they're cued to see it. Uh, so that for the most part, if you watch CNN and uh, about the BP oil spill or what, you know, name the disaster, mm-hmm. um, you'll get a, a, if you're lucky, you get a two-minute picture of what is going on. Now, two minutes trying to explain something that big and complex, the only way that you can fit that into two minutes is by, number one, making use of assumptions that the audience already has, and number two, uh, pairing away context that might um, make it more difficult to get your message across. Uh, so that has become 
so pervasive and so basic to uh, particularly to commercial communication, state communication, uh, political candidate communication, um, and uh, and even mainstream media communication. Pick up the newspaper. The, name the newspaper, the UK newspaper, the Telegraph, the, the Guardian, whatever. The, the news hole is actually quite confined. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the way that the hole is filled and the message is transmitted is by cutting out context. That's, uh, that's the, what you have there is what you might call silent propaganda. In other words, it, it exists in what is not said about a particular uh, uh, controversy or particular issue. In America, this is, you know, we look at racism as, uh, and also misogyny as the classic silent or relatively silent propaganda uh, about how society reinvents itself. And it's not until people push past that silence that they become actors in reinventing its society in new ways. Um, Listening to you talk there and and, uh, your remarks on identification and branding, um, it does raise a whole set of questions as to how insurgent um, left-wing political movements can begin to build an alternative to a marketing consumer culture sure. um, without um, succumbing to a kind of new labour um, dementia about um, uh, logos and so on, but actually thinking about the ways in which identifying with ideas, identifying with a tradition um, can become part of how we carve out a stable identity Without, without needing to pay, as it were, rent to brands, commercial brands, um, to remain mm-hmm. sort of viable in the world. Because as you were talking, you were saying, you know, oh, I'm a, you know, I'm a, a, um, a Giorgio Armani kind of guy, or I'm a, um, a Verve Clicquot kind of guy, or whatever. The, the brands with which you identify exact a price from us. Um, they are, yes. they, they require a, a constant expenditure to maintain the relationship. Um, and that is, is almost like a form of psychological rent that's being extracted. Yes, so absolutely right. It, the brands also deliver a benefit um, in, in this sense, and it's a, it's a highly questionable benefit, but in this sense is that uh, an individual who, you know, you start as an infant and uh, you grow up through your, your teens and your 20s and so forth. And what are you doing? You're forming some sort of individual identity, some sort of individual and group consciousness, a body of ideas that people agree with, all those sorts of things. Well, the, the Burberry coat gives you that identity, or the new car gives you that identity. And if you look at their advertising, that is exactly what they're doing. They're saying, buy our car, and you will have a successful identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people, you know, people listen. In fact, people do need to develop identities, particularly in mass societies, uh, and particularly in opposition to celebrity identities. Uh, but nonetheless, that's that whole realm of identity development, starting with school, start, starting with elementary school, is tends to be dominated by uh, people who have a significant financial interest in that. And certainly, that's the case in the U.S. Um, so, the and when I say financial. Uh, interest. I don't just mean kind of like selling Coca-Cola to school children. Mm-hmm. What I mean is that, although it includes selling Coca-Cola to school children, um, what I mean is that, uh, how can I say this? Um, I'm kind of struggling with this concept, but that there's a certain sort of symbiosis 
between consumer society and, uh, say, the you know, uh, neoliberal economic policies, um, and that um, when you're talking about left-wing people or any kind of person who's seeking a way out of this milieu, mm-hmm. uh, out of the uh, the water, if you will, um, as uh, as uh, Robert Bishop would say, um, that um, that you have to deal on that level. Your 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 idea of changing society has to take into account the needs of people of the actual humans in that society. Mm-hmm. material needs, psychological needs, medical needs, and so forth. And that's really a different type of organizing. Uh, I mean, certainly it has deep historical roots, but it's a different type of organizing than was characteristic of the 1960s, to name only one example. Yeah, the, and I think this touches on, well, there's a whole other conversation we could be having about uh, about the success of the alt-right in addressing this need for identity. Yeah. Um, they've been yes. much more successful, I think, um, than the left in addressing this. Yeah, this this idea of, of the sort of the constitution of the self, how how the self finds itself in the context of mass society. Um, right. Been... Well, and part part of the advantage that the right has is it is it its propaganda tends to play on very atavistic themes. The the theme of race, the theme of uh, our, our, our people are in danger, our nation is in danger, and the only way to stop this danger is what? Brexit, whatever the, whatever the product of the moment is. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, the, uh, uh, and so right-wing militarists come, they have a, 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 a Mm, an advantage yeah. in some areas. Yeah. I think that's, that's one reason why why you see uh, the particular forms of popular, uh, populism that are characteristic in Europe uh, and other countries today. Mm. That's where they're coming from. Um, I do think that people can, that a society can, can um, regenerate itself out of that trap. But I also think that that's a very difficult thing to do. Mm. Maybe we could finish up by um, with you sort of reflecting on what, what, how you think the um, technological changes that have taken place in the last um, decade or so uh, may have um, changed the capacity and potential for propaganda and also for a new left-wing or egalitarian vision of social organisation. Well, um, that's... Uh, that's certainly a fair question. Uh, again, it's a pretty complicated one. But um, the uh, the, uh, the gist of what I would say about that is, yes, we, we are in a um, period of extremely rapid shifts and changes in media, in the, in the medium uh, of culture, of society, of individual uh, identities, individual behaviors, that is changing really fast. You can remember back in the 1990s, that was interpreted to be, oh, okay, well, we'll be more empowered and freer and happier than we ever were before. Well, it it just hasn't worked out that way. At least I don't think so. Um, Yes, there are levers, ways to use these technologies to advance a more uh, humanitarian or more progressive uh, approach to the world. Okay, so how, how is that done? Well, uh, I think, first of all, the left needs to, to, to um, think a little bit more deeply about what it actually wants to do. Uh, and so here in the United States, we've, we've got uh, Bernie Sanders, to name only one example. Um, Sanders has an idea that, well, we're going to adjust the institutions, some of the core institutions of the United States to be more uh, humane and uh, uh, more effective for uh, individual or for ordinary citizens. That's a great idea. No problem. But with that comes 
a regeneration of, of particularly the institutions that already sort of had that job and failed, uh, if you see what I'm saying, or had that job and put it to use to some other ends, so that the institutional change has to be part of this. Uh, institutional reconstruction has to be part of this. Um, another way of phrasing your question if I may, is if if propaganda is what I say it is, is it possible to escape? Uh, Do we have any choice other than to to live in the the, uh, society more or less as it's presently configured? Um, And to that, I would say, yes, it is possible to escape. And there are people and groups that are doing fantastic stuff um, to turn um, or deturn uh, the media juggernaut onto itself uh, to expose the actual interests of the actual context of media as it exists today. Um, so one of those ways is to go on the radio and you know talk academic talk like I'm doing and uh, and try to get other people interested in this stuff. But a more fundamental way to get at that is to recognize that the, the old structure of international relations, to name one example, is already broken. Uh, and anybody who, I, I think, anybody who looks at it with a degree of objectivity knows that that's the case. Uh, so... That's international relations. Well, what about national relationships? Many institutions, uh, for example, universities, seem to me to be already broken. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that simply um, polishing them up a little bit and knocking out one or some of the dents and so on, uh, that that isn't really going to change it in a fundamental sense. It needs a, uh, a deeper disruption of what is going on so that people in these institutions can rethink, well, what is the point of what I'm doing anyway? What is, what is you know, I work in a, in a university for 20 years. What, so what's the point of that? Uh, and so my, my view of that is, is that you try to disrupt it. You try to change it enough so that people start rethinking it. Well, that's a, uh, that's a, a rallying cry on which to end, I think. Um, Professor Simpson, thank you so much for joining us uh, today. As I said earlier, I cannot recommend Science of Coercion highly enough. And in that and in, in, in your other books, you've made major contribution I think to our understanding of of communications so I'd like to to thank you again for joining us on the show yeah thanks for coming on yeah it's my pleasure good luck with the podcast